right, so before we start the podcast today, a huge thanks to Shanks Tavern for letting us record here today. If you haven't been down to Shanks Tavern in Marietta, Pennsylvania, it is a beautiful establishment. It just oozes history. And sitting at the table with us is Bob Shank, um, owner, proprietor, and just a little bit of background on your tavern. It's a beautiful place. I mean, you've really kept the, the feel of a tavern. That's what I'm most impressed with. Well, and that's true because uh, the place was built in 1814, and my grandfather actually bought it in 1930. So my grandparents ran it until the 50s when my father took over, and then my mom was helping out, and then they separated, and mom ended up with a tavern. And I started helping mom out in 1968 when I got out of the Navy, and the rest is history. And we strive to maintain that old neighborhood tavern uh, vibe that we have. Well, you hit a home run. I mean, this is a great establishment. So uh, you look forward to, we're going to put together a, a longer interview uh, with Mr. Shank here about the history of the tavern. Take a look at that. Uh, we'll wait for that. But until next time, thanks, Mr. Shank. We appreciate Thank the hospitality. You. And uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hey, welcome everyone to the podcast History, Politics, and Beer. We are doing something very special today. Uh, we are actually on location, Jeff Hudson. Um, now, obviously, a listener can't see this, but we are sitting in a tavern, Shanks Tavern. We're going to get more specific on that. Down on the Susquehanna River, this tavern's been Marietta, around. PA. Right down the Susquehanna River, 19, 1814, this tavern was established. And um, which really brings us to why we even call this podcast History, Politics, and Beer. Um, we like to drink beer, and we're enjoying some beers right now at the tavern. But it, beer and bars and taverns play a really important role in American history. And Think it, Sam Adams. Exactly. Thinking Sam Adams, and especially a tavern like this one that's so close to the Susquehanna. So we're going to talk a little bit about the role of taverns um, in history and how the river and why taverns are located close to rivers, close to roads, and how all of that would have played really well into American history and into American democracy. Well, right, because, uh, you know, as, as people know, probably, who are listening to the podcast, America was 13 separate colonies. Um, how do you get to be a nation out of that? Well, one way is you start to travel. And when you travel along the river or the road, where do you stop? Well, it was the it was the tavern. There was a lot of times a hotel and food, and then there was alcohol offered. And so you would talk to people. You could go down and meet somebody who had a different perspective of you. In fact, you could meet someone uh, from another uh, colony as before the revolution, and you could start talking about your grievances against the English, as they did in Boston and, and all over the United States. And you, you could begin, as we did, to develop a sense of common identity 
through these conversations. Right. This is a, this is the town square. The taverns are town squares uh, where now men, no women yet, um, men are coming in and we're sitting in a back room here, which is just a really cool old back room. The The wooden floors are creaking when you're talking and when you're walking on them. Matter of fact, you might be able to hear behind us uh, some of the happenings. It's hap- they're, they're, they're prepping the bar right now. Um, and I just can kind of imagine all the conversations that took place in this room um, from personal conversations about families to business conversations as men are traveling up and down the river on trade and economic and political decisions are made here. When during the time of the revolution, when England and the crown shut down these quote unquote mini parliaments all over America, um, the guys went to the founders went to taverns and that's where those meetings continue to take place with smoking. Now we're not smoking now, um, but having a beer and having a pipe. Um, and these are big decisions that are being made. So I can, I cannot be more excited than we are right now to be in a, at a tavern talking about our next topic. So taverns and part of American history. And we're going to segue ourselves right into this tavern, Shanks Tavern, in 1814. As you probably recognize, that's the Star Spangled Banner, and uh, that was written at the same in the same year that the tavern we're in, Shanks Tavern in Marietta, Pennsylvania, was established. And the War of 1812 was a war against Great Britain, and it wasn't a great success in a lot of ways. I mean, we did get our capital and our White House burned. Yeah, when you get when the White House gets burned. You, you, something bad happened. Yeah, when when Dolly Midas has to move out, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you probably weren't totally successful. It did have its successes. Uh, uh, we we scored some big victories in uh, naval combat, which I think shocked the British. In fact, it did. If you read yeah. about it, it shocked and the it, British Navy that the Americans could uh, go toe to toe with them and sink some of their ships. Right. But and as General General Coxworth, I think was a general that burned Washington, and he gave his men orders to burn to when they went to get all the printing presses to make sure they destroyed all the letter C's because they were saying bad things about him, and he didn't want to be able to use his name in vain anymore. I, I tend to think it's because he didn't like his name, Coxworth. Well, I, mean, I well, think they can imagine what the colonists, well, the 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 Americans were saying. Yes, absolutely. At that time. But. Um, but anyhow, uh, the, the, the War of 1812 leads, uh, and the, the end of it, leads to an era of new nationalism, yes. a new sense of our country as, as, as one country, as, as probably our listeners know. People felt of, of themselves, of course, before the revolution as a member of a colony, after the revolution, primarily as members of states. Right. But this is our first declared war. And it has a positive outcome, and 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 that the British get kicked out. They 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 pretty much are forced to recognize that we are an independent country. We're not going to be part of Great Britain anymore. And you have this uh, new birth of patriotism, and the Star Spangled Banner 
uh, is in, is sort of emblematic of what happened. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the War of 1812, when a Treaty of Ghent is signed in 1814, not much changes. Uh, the war basically, the treaty basically returns everything to the status quo, but that's not what Americans, it didn't make a difference. Americans viewed it as a victory. We stood toe-to-toe with the British. The British went home. Sometimes historians will call the War of 1812 the Second American Revolution because it was this war that Americans stood up for themselves as a nation and said, no, we are we are a sovereign nation and we belong on the highway of nations in the oceans. We belong to be a part at the table of nations. And it was true. Um, so regardless of Washington getting burned or um, the different battles that we may lost, the, the, Montreal is an example of that. We come out on the other side as victorious, at least in our own eyes. And probably the icing on the cake is in New Orleans, uh, where Andrew Jackson this is now this is two weeks after the Treaty of Ghent was signed, but of course, news travels rather slowly. Um, there is a, a war there's a battle in New Orleans. Uh, Jackson, I think, takes 71 casualties and he inflicts over 2,000 on the British. And this catapults Jackson into stardom. Uh, this is a great American victory. And with the Treaty of Ghent being signed, with Andrew Jackson becoming a national hero, nationalism and the national anthem, America. Americans are proud to be Americans. Uh, we start, it's the beginning of the process of thinking of ourselves as Americans first and our state second. Now, the Civil War is going to complete that transition, but this is certainly the beginning of that movement. And sure, and, and places like Shanks, which is built uh, along uh, uh, the Susquehanna River and what was a canal at that time, uh, are institutions that solidified uh, right. this national identity. People were moving about. And when they moved about, they talked to one another. And I'm sure in 1814, the discussions were about uh, the War of 1812. The War of 1812. And the British going, I'm sure in 1815, the discussions were uh, after a while, after the news traveled, this boy, did Jackson give those guys a licket? Right. And, 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 and a new sense of American pride, uh, a new sense of American identity. Right. And ownership of this tavern in 1814, right along the Susquehanna, where people are coming in from the north uh, and trade is coming down from the north. Um, Different. It depends how far north you're going. I'm sure a lot of this trade is originating in New York and coming down. Northern PA. Right. So a trade coming down from New York, you're definitely getting a very different view of the war than you would be here in Pennsylvania. So I'm sure there was a lot of political conversations happening around this tavern, the bar sitting right next to me. Um, You know, I, I love being in places like this. I love going into old buildings and just sitting there and kind of absorbing what the people who have gone before me and the conversations that were taking place here. All right. So um, we are going to leave that now behind and we are going to segue ourselves into federalism and the power of the federal government. We took the little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it. All right, so that was the Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. I'm sure you all have that on your listening list, iPods and stuff like that. Most of you probably have, you know, if you get a little romantic. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, you know, it's uh, Friday, Saturday night with the wife. And, you know, that 
something you put on, I think. That was my prom theme my senior year <laughs> <laughs> in New Orleans. It was very romantic. Um, hey, th- we're going to answer the question basically today, why does the federal government have so much damn power? Uh, where does it all come from? And it's a kind of a complicated answer to that. And it's also sort of a real interesting answer because the Constitution doesn't answer a lot of these questions. It is up to Americans to figure it out along the way. So, Jeff, do you want to get us going on, really, this is going to center a lot around John Marshall and the Marshall Court. So you want to well, uh, sure. take us back a little bit? Yeah. Well, the, the Constitution itself was written and to establish a more powerful federal government. The, uh, the Articles of Confederation, which is the government that won the revolution, was seen as inadequate to the challenges, the challenges of a, of, of a growing nation. Uh, and Adequate to protect us possibly against the British or the French or the right. Spanish or any of the powers that surround us, and really inadequate to pay the debts of the United States, which businessmen were very concerned about, and inadequate to facilitate the growth of the United States politically and especially economically. So, um, when they write the Constitution itself, it's it is a triumph. Uh, for people who call themselves federalists, uh, people who want a stronger federal government vis-a-vis the states. Um, but it does leave, as uh, Matt said, it leaves a lot of open questions. Now, there's powers in the Constitution called the delegated powers, and they're given to Congress. And those are the powers directly given to the United States government. Yeah. And, and if the you, power to declare war, power to regulate interstate, right. and especially the power to tax is in there. And, and so there's no doubt they wanted to create a more powerful federal government. The question is, how much more powerful? And right. it's always been argued. And if you look at the, the powers in Article One and you think and you study the weaknesses in the Articles of Confederation, you can almost draw a direct line. Right. The founders are very specific that this was a problem, therefore we're going to have the power to collect taxes. This was a problem, you have the power to declare war. This was a problem, now you have the power to regulate commerce. So this was not blanket powers being given to um oh, a train gone by right now. That's kind of epic right there. Um, so um, so this isn't just blanket powers being given to the federal government. This is really about very specific powers being given to the federal government to correct very specific problems that were caused by the articles. Absolutely. Uh, it's almost prescriptive. And, right. And, you know, they, they prided themselves. This, uh, the, the Constitution is a product of the European Enlightenment, and they're supposed to, that's the age of reason. They're supposed to examine things and f- facilitate uh, uh, a remedy for, for those problems. And a very, they would have put it in a very scientific way. And certainly that's what you have uh, with Article 1, Section 8. But Article 1, Section 8 uh, also creates something called the um, implied powers. Right. And that's through the what they call the elastic clause, which says, well, you know, Congress has all the power to, <laughs> to uh, carry out the powers that they are given. In other words, they can create institutions and make laws to carry out the powers they're given. And there's a little bit of a blank check in that. Yes, there can be absolutely a little bit of a blank check, and it's going to allow the federal government, that's why we call them the elastic powers, it's really going to allow the federal government to stretch 
what it's able to do. Right, and it's stretched one way. It really hasn't snapped. <laughs> I don't know why they call it elastic, because it hasn't snapped back. No, no, it's it's really just a rope that's being let out. And early on, one of the just to give you an example of this, early on, one of the uh, things that was being argued about was a national bank. Um, Jefferson said there should be no national bank, because in the Constitution, it doesn't say you can create a national bank. Hamilton says, well, yeah, but we can regulate commerce, we can collect taxes, that in, that's kind of implied that well, you need a bank and, and and coin money. I mean, and coin money. Yeah, yes, yeah, you know, if you're going to coin money, you're going to distribute it. Uh, maybe, and you're going to uh, pay the debts to the United States. Maybe you need an institution to do that. So they do create a national bank. I think the first one's in Philly. Right. I think you can go visit that. Just, I mean, that was the location of our government. But then they spread it around and they spread it to Maryland. Right. Right. So this is a really and Washington subscribes to this, that there are implied powers in the Constitution. And um, that's he's he's not a Federalist, but really he was. He subscribes to the Federalist um, ideology. Jefferson, Democratic Republican, really wants to limit the government. He really wants to take a more uh, literalist approach what we call strict construction of the Constitution. And basically, if the Constitution doesn't allow it, it's denied. And this is going to be – and really, what we're talking about here, we, we're arguing the same thing in modern politics that we argued back in the early 1800s, and that is the role of the federal government. Right. And uh, you know, Jefferson saw the, the ideal republic as being human farmers. You yes. Know? And, and, and you could understand why he would think that. They would be self-reliant and independent. They would be like the majority of people who are around – when the Revolutionary War was fought, because most of them were small farmers. But Hamilton has a different vision. Hamilton's vision is, in, you know, uh, industrial expansion and opening up uh, the, the West. And that actually is going to become, uh, even though the Federalists don't, <laughs> you know, Adams is their, the last uh, Federalist president, that's going to become the vision of the United States. So part of what we're talking about is, how did that happen? And John Marshall is a pivotal figure in that. Well, let's start off with one of the obvious holes in the Constitution, and that is what happens if an um, one of the branches of government does something that's against the Constitution? Because it really isn't addressed. Uh, the Constitution doesn't actually say who is the final arbiter of a law or an action by government. And... Um, I think early on, it was really it was the president, the president's role of signing a bill into Congress, signing a bill into law um, was really predicated on the idea. Did the president believe that law was constitutional? If he be believed the law was constitutional, it was really his obligation to sign it into law. The idea that he didn't like the law. Therefore, he wasn't going to sign it is really a power that's discovered by Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's the first president really to start vetoing legislation for the sole purpose of him not liking it. So there really isn't this filter to decide what is constitutional and what isn't constitutional. Yeah, and the, the, what the Constitution says, I mean, it, it outlines in Articles 1, 2, and 3, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. What it says is that the uh, judicial authority, uh, the judicial power, shall be invested in the Supreme Court. Well, what is that? 
we don't know what that is. And there's going to have to be uh, uh, some kind of actual application of that judicial power before we know what it is. And that happens in Marbury versus Madison. Now, it does say in subsequent laws that create other courts that the, the, the Supreme Court will have the power of judicial review. Well, what the heck is judicial review? We still don't know what that is. Someone has to fill in the blanks. And that someone is going to be John Marshall, who was appointed by Adams. He becomes our longest-serving chief justice, 34 years or right. something like that. If you like don't know that. who John Marshall is— he has of he may have had more impact on the United States and the formation of our government or how our government modern government works than any other American. Maybe, maybe. maybe. I mean, it's yeah, arguable. I mean, it's arguable. Yeah, certainly more than any other Supreme Court justice. Oh, absolutely. My certainly, gosh, yes. certainly more than anybody who wasn't a president. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. and it probably one of people that one of the few. Uh, Call him a founder uh, that Americans simply don't know about. He's appointed by Je- he's appointed by Adams. He's a Federalist. Uh, right at the end of Adams's uh, presidency, uh, he is appointed. Uh, Adams is going to be the last Federalist president, and Jeff uh, and Marshall carries on for thirty some years. Uh, Marshall carries on for thirty some years, carrying out judicial review judicial decisions that are favoring the Federalists even though the Federalist Party no longer exists. Supreme Court appointments for life. Right. And so so Mar- not to get too down in Marbury versus Madison, because I think probably most of our listeners are familiar with the rudimentary parts of Marbury versus Madison. Uh, Marshall captures judicial review for the Supreme Court because he declares an act unconstitutional right. um, and says, no, no, I can't. We can't decide this act because we can't decide this case because the premise on what you're bringing it to us is unconstitutional. We're not allowed to hear this case. Therefore, we're throwing it out. So basically, right. from the jaws of defeat, he claims some sort of victory for the court and claims that power of judicial review. Uh, we're being brought fresh beers. I tell you what, uh, what, what am I drinking? Dogfish, dragons, and yum yums, and half Duclaw, uh, dirty little freak. What this might be the? I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This might be one of the best combinations of beers I've ever had. Okay. This Mixologist. is. Oh, it is good. Alrighty. All right. Where was I? I'm drinking beer and I'm and, loving it at 10 a.m. Right. And we're talking about politics and history. Oh, God, so life tavern. is life is good. <laughs> Oh, uh, Mulberry versus Madison, judicial review. So, right. so he establishes the, the precedent that the Supreme Court can declare a law unconstitutional. So that's what judicial review comes to mean. Right. It, it, it means what Marshall has said it means. And uh, as a famous justice says later, the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means. Right. And it, it wasn't that case before John Marshall, but it sure was afterwards. Alright, so next on the list of great Marshall decisions in the expansion of the federal government is a case called McCullough versus Maryland. This is 1819. Do you want to give us some background to the McCullough case uh, so we can better understand what's happening? Well, we we have the idea, again, of the National Bank. It's been established. And now there's going to be branches of the National Bank. And and one of them is going to be in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, the people who really resent that, among them, 
people who have uh, state uh, banks in that area and see this new federal bank as some kind of competitor, they don't they don't like it. They don't want that national bank there. And the Maryland legislature uh, puts a tax on the the bank and the cashier of the bank is the cashier is not the guy who hands out the money, but that's the that was the president, the head of the bank, is a guy named McCullough. And he resents this. He, you know, he, he thinks this is, as, as Federalists like Hamilton do, uh, they, he thinks this is an unwarranted interference with something that clearly the federal government has the implied power to do. We had mentioned if you can coin money, if you can tax the states as the Constitution, if you can pay the debts of the United States, guess what? It's implied you got to have an institution to do that. Right. And so Congress has created the National Bank, and Maryland doesn't like it, and they start to tax it. I mean, you could imagine that your local municipality starts taxing the post office in your town um, and starts to keep raising a tax on the post office. <laughs> the federal government isn't going to like that. They have the power to deliver the mail. If you're taxing the post office, basically what's the, what the premise is, the power to tax is the power to destroy. Right. That's what the Supreme Court and Marshall is going to eventually decide, right? If you can tax something, you can tax something out of existence because you can raise the tax so much that the entity can't begin to pay it. And this is the decision. Who has the authority to establish this bank and what is going to be supreme? Is the state power going to be supreme over the federal power? Is the federal power going to be supreme over the state power? And in this case, what is the decision? Well, the decision is that it, it, Congress was well within their rights to create the bank in the first place under the elastic clause. So it upholds this part of the Constitution that's going to allow this huge expansion of federal government, that, that Congress does indeed uh, have the power to create the institutions and laws to carry out its delegated powers. And uh, as you mentioned, they say the power to tax is the power to destroy, and you can't do that. And there's you, there's an implied there. There's there's something in Article Six of the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause. Right. And if there's ever a conflict between state law and the American Constitution, it says very explicitly the American Constitution will be supreme. So that's that's implied there too. That uh, the the Constitution gives Congress the power. To, to do this under the elastic clause, and that's the way it is. So too bad, Maryland, your taxes have to go bye-bye. Right. So if there's a conflict between the federal government and the state government, the federal government is going to reign supreme. That just makes sense to us today. But really, it didn't. And this, I, I think one of the things you really need to get out of this podcast is how much these people are figuring it out. Right. I mean, there, this Constitution, if you read it, you can read it in one sitting very easily. It's very vague. Um, and there's huge holes for people to decide. And I don't know if it was intended to be that way. Well, I think to some extent it was intended to be that way. I mean, um, for instance, even Article 10, which reserves powers to the states. Article 10? Uh, excuse me, uh, Bill of Rights and, okay. and, and, right. and, and uh, Amendment 10. It reserves power. What, what, right, what rights are reserved to the states? And we, we have talked about uh, Amendment 9 in the Bill of Rights, which says that you have rights that aren't listed. Well, what are those rights? I think they were wise enough to know that they couldn't write a document 
in, at that time that would cover every eventuality. They wanted a working government, and that's what they tried to create. Right. So I think that when you have an appreciation for the Constitution, you should have just as much as an appreciation of those people who fought and those people who argued to mold the Constitution into what it is today. So McCullough versus Maryland, great case, uh, one of the hallmarks of the Marshall Court, which brings us to... How in the hell did the federal government get so much damn power? And this is Gibbons and Ogden. And if you don't know this Supreme Court case, you should know this Supreme Court case. Right, Jeff? Right, because its uh, basis is the interstate commerce clause in the Constitution and the power to regulate interstate commerce. That is, commerce between the states was a delegated power given to Congress in the Constitution. Because there was a big problem beforehand between states. Each state was coming up with their own trade laws. And they, shutting they, down they trade. They would have tariffs. Right. And, and, it was and, a mess. It was, and the economy could not grow. And they realized that if the economy was going to grow, that businessmen had to have a set of rules uh, that were national. Right. That, you know, if you want to have a national business, if you want to ship something as, you know, like I said, we're in Shanks, we're in, in Pennsylvania, but the harbor of the Susquehanna's in Maryland, if you want to, if you want to have some commerce between these two states, you can't have one state with one set of rules and another state with another. Businessmen can't operate in that environment. And if you look at all the reasons why the Constitution was written because of the failure of the Articles of Confederation, this issue alone is probably the biggest. Trade was grinding to a halt. The economic life of America was being strangled because interstate commerce was a mess because of all the different laws being passed. So this case is important. This case is extremely important. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it involves uh, some Lancaster natives in, 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 a, in a way. Uh, one of the most famous of Lancaster's native sons is Robert Fulton. Uh, you might have heard of him as the inventor of the steamboat. Uh, certainly other people were experimenting and making steamboats at the time. Uh, but he had developed uh, a workable uh, steamboats, and, and he'd gone into business. Uh, it's interesting. One of the persons that gave him the idea uh, was a uh, a state representative whom he visited, who had actually met James Watt, the guy who is credited with with developing the steam engine in England. So the, you know he got it from the the source, and and he figured, well, maybe I can power a boat this way. And Robert Fulton uh, uh, goes over. He goes over to France. He's credited with a lot of different things, uh, making the first workable submarine. Making really the, yes, <laughs> making the, the first workable submarine is Fulton. It's called the Nautilus. And and then making a torpedo of a type, a self-propelled, uh, you know, naval munition. But anyhow, comes back to the United States. Uh, uh, the the I think it's the ambassador France. He enters business with uh, a guy named Livingston, and he gets a monopoly on the uh, Hudson River for traffic between New Jersey. And New York, which at that time in New York has a great natural harbor, and that time was a burgeoning city, and this monopoly is worth a lot of money. It's granted by uh, the state of New York, but there's problems with that. But anyhow, there's a guy 
who initially wants to challenge that monopoly. Uh, his name is Ogden, and, and then he goes, well, you know, in the end, maybe I'll just buy the monopoly privilege. And he does from Fulton and Livingston. So now his steamships are going across the Hudson River from New Jersey to New York, and he's got a monopoly on that. But guess what? Just like he didn't like the fact that he couldn't compete freely, there's other people who don't like the right, fact. This is lucrative to bring people back and oh forth and from New Jersey to New York. Manu- you know, goods in a new manufacturing economy. And, and if the state can issue a monopoly to somebody, my God, that's there's no competition. So the money to be had here is is very lucrative. Um and it kind of flies in the face of capitalism and free market, but certainly it's this is bringing up a constitutional issue. Right. I mean, you know, you got two states here, New York and New Jersey, and uh, a guy named Gibbons says, you know, it's not right. I, I want to I wanna be in on this business. I want to put my boats in the water, and I want to bring people back and forth. Right. And, and, and capitalism would suggest we want open markets. We right. want competition, because if you don't, if you have a monopoly, I mean, what's Ogden going to do eventually? He's going to charge whatever anybody will pay to get across that river from New York to New Jersey or back again. So this case goes to the Supreme Court. And guess who's there to decide? It's John Marshall. Right. And so this is a chance for the federal government um, to really sort of expand power. We have two things going on here. The state first issues a monopoly saying that Ogden, right? Ogden is going to be the the sole provider of transportation. He's bought that from Fulton and Livingston. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's going to be the sole sole provider. Gibbon says, no, 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 no. I want in on this. I'm going to start up my own competitive steamboats back and forth uh, between uh, New York and New Jersey. And of course, Ogden says, no, you can't do that. The state has already granted me, state law has already given me the exclusive right to operate these steamboats. So the case goes to the Supreme Court. And you wouldn't think that this is interstate commerce because you tend to think of commerce as goods moving back and forth between states. Are they going to be cabbages or whatever they may be? And there were some goods, but a right. lot of times there's people, right? So it is the Supreme Court that says, well, New York, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You don't have a right to set this up because this is moving between states. And anything that moves between states is the purview of the federal government, and you don't have the power to do this. So, Gibbons, you get to set up your competing steamboat line, which then places squarely in the lap of the federal government the ability to regulate almost anything eventually that's going to move between states. Sure. And and this is a it almost can't be overstated oh, what an enormous expansion of federal power this is i mean eventually uh you know in the 1870s and stuff we get the uh we get regulation of the railroad so why do you get regulation of the railroad so guess what ra- unless you got the littlest railroad of all time right they go between states and who controls commerce between the states it's the federal government according uh to gibbons versus ogden so this this just adds enormous power uh to the federal government yeah, Marshall was a federalist. That's what, you know, he intended that. But I think we can look at this as also a fairly strict interpretation of the Constitution. I mean, 
who, who gets the delegated power to regulate interstate commerce? Federal government. Federal government. The states agreed to that. And they ratified the Constitution. I don't know if they would agree to all the manifestations of what happened with the federal government's control over interstate commerce. But, uh, you know, uh, that's what happened. And, right. So when you when you ask yourself the question, where does the federal government get the power to do this? The big door that opens is the Commerce Clause. Um, how does the federal government get the ability to regulate television stations? Well, guess what? Television station signals travel between states. That becomes a purview of the federal government. How does the federal government get the right to regulate uh, insurance and Obamacare? Well, guess what? Insurance is sold between states. The federal How government. about airplane traffic? The Air- FAA and all these organizations that we create to control these things. I mean, airplanes, I guess you can have an airplane from, you know, tra- uh, travel from one part of New Jersey to another. But most people drive because New Jersey's little. <laughs> so it's interstate commerce. And there you go. Well, who controls interstate commerce? It has to be the federal government. So you have the, uh, you know, the federal aid. Aviation administration, they're going to control that. So there you go. Uh, the Marshall Court, and what makes John Marshall so interesting is that he's so powerful. The Marshall Court is so uh, such a big part of our history in solidifying the power of the federal government. And what makes it even more interesting is that most of his term in office, over 30 years of it, was under Democratic Republicans who would have been against him, would have been against this philosophy. Jefferson, for example, would not have been uh, a believer in a lot of what the Marshall Court is bringing down. And you certainly can make an argument that this may have been John Adams' most important, most influential decision that he's ever made. Um, We don't think of John Adams as being a very important president, uh, but this one decision to make John Marshall the Chief Justice Supreme Court is going to ring through history and that we can still hear that ring today. Absolutely. So, hey, thanks for joining us today from Shanks Tavern. Uh, Let us know what you're thinking. Drop us a line on email. Hit us on Twitter. Hit us on Facebook, whatever you can. Until next time, uh, happy drinking. See ya.